I'm Jake Corley. And I'm Mark LaCour. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil professionals who want to quickly keep their fingers on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. We are up into the triple digits, yep. episode 100. Awesome, man. Episode 100. Uh, Jake, and we need to do something special for our listeners, especially ones that could make it here in Houston. And we just can't find a sponsor. We want to do a live event. So that's going to be our 100th episode. It's going to be our celebration. We already have a location. We have a caterer picked out. We have the sound guy picked out. And we're still looking for a sponsor. So if you'd like to have your company in front of our enormous global oil and gas audience, and it is enormous because we have the number one podcast in oil and gas, reach out to either Jake and I. We'll talk through the details. But this will be some great exposure for you. And then you'll help us put on one heck of an event. Plus, it'd be so cool to meet some of you guys, which we've already had the opportunity to do at plenty of other events. But uh, I don't know. It's just more intimate. Yeah, it'd you know? be cool to have a, a bunch of listeners in one room together. So not only can we meet them and they meet us, and then they can meet each other. I mean, you know. Yeah, good just, networking opportunity. Yeah, awesome networking opportunity. And then we throw a little alcohol in there, and I'll make sure I have the video cameras oh, rolling. Oh, man. Yeah, we'll get some funny stuff. Always makes for a good time. <laughs> so speaking of good time, we are going to be at NAPE this week. Yeah, it's um, actually next week, technically. Um, yeah, we'll be at Is Nate. it next week? It's next week, yeah. It's, oh. uh, uh, what is it, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I think? 15th, I got my dates mixed up. Yeah, today's Friday, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> and if everybody listen, and Jake's been working his butt off, so it's okay for him to lose track of what day it is. <laughs> but yeah, North American Prospect Expo, all of the podcasts will be there as guests. Um, and Jake, this year we have an on-the-road sponsor. So our, for 2017, our, our road sponsor is Lee Heck and Harrison. Uh, they're global experts in talent management, and, and they're currently helping over 75% of the Fortune 500 oil and gas companies simplify the complexity of leadership and workforce transformation. So hats off to those guys for sponsoring all of the podcasts for all of our road trips that were taken. And and if you're going to be at NAPE, reach out to Jake and I because we would love to meet you in person. And hey, maybe we'll even drag you on the podcast. And we also got the Geo Convention coming up May 15th through 19th in Calgary. Yeah, and Dustin just reached out to me. He still has some of those special booth uh, prices out there. So you can still get in on this. You get a regular 10 by 10 space, which is normal $1,800 or $1,600. Jacob put J uh, Dustin's email in there. We're going to be there. Actually, Jake, you and I are going to be doing the lunch. Uh, we're going to be speakers at lunch. So, um, you know, if any of our listeners are you know, up there and are going to make this event, let us know there as well. And then we talked about we'll be at NAPE. We're also going to be at Process Safety in March. We'll be at um, OTC, which is going to be huge for, with uh, National Oil Well and also our sponsor, Red Wing. So we're going to be recording live from National Oil Well Shrimp Boil, but we'll also record live from the OTC floor at the Red Wing booth. So if you have a trade association, a company of uh, conference, schools, sales, marketing meetings, whatever, uh, and you'd like Jake and I to come speak or any of the podcasts, reach out to us and we'll be happy to share those details as well. All right, let's jump into our stories for the week. So this is, uh, we, we've got a whole lot of stories lined up. Apparently a lot's been going on this week. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive right into it. So the first article up, uh, Wall Street's pouring a ton of money back into oil and gas, which is great. Uh, so U.S. oil inventories increased this week by 13.8 million barrels for a total of 508 million barrels. Uh, it's been almost 80 years since it's been this high. Yeah, and so... Wall Street, Wall Street seems very optimistic. And Jake, you and I know this. This is We kind of have both of us in different ways have our fingers on this pulse. There's a ton of investor money has been sitting on the sidelines and that money's starting. To, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Money's starting to work its way into the industry, especially these large shale plays. Yeah, you've got um, in the Permian, uh, Parsley Energy, kind of blank there for a second, uh, just acquired a 71,000 acres this week. Uh, and really just secured its place as one of the top independent producers in the Permian. 
Um, and that was the second largest, I think, acquisition in uh, the Permian over the last like month, uh, just second to Exxon. Yeah. And then uh, drillers and oilfield service companies raised over $6.64 billion in 13 different equity offerings. And then it looks like um, Moody's predicting that M&A activity will, will be really big in 2017, uh, even being the $24 billion that happened last year. So you're seeing a lot of money pumping uh, into the oil and gas industry from Wall Street, which is good. It's good for everybody. Yeah, it's going to be a good year. It's crazy that we're going to be $24 billion in M&A, <laughs> but I think we're almost there in just uh, in February. Yeah, it's um, we've been watching this happen. We've, we actually called it wrong a few years ago, but 2017 is going to be a huge M&A uh, activity level in oil and gas. And that creates jobs and prosperity and opportunity. And then even for the investors, right, if they make a return on their money, which most of them is what they're trying to do, then they can reinvest that money again, which completes the cycle, which is just drives prosperity for everybody. So it's just it's good to see all this cash poured in this industry. And it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon, Jake. I think we need to get in on the Permian. <laughs> I think it's, too, it's way too late for that. Yeah, way too Le late. Core and Corley Energy. There we go. All right. Up next, uh, the U.S. is to sell 10 million barrels uh, from our strategic reserves. Uh, this is the first shipment of a total of 25 million barrels to be sold over the next three years as part of the 21st Century Cure Act, which was signed last December. Um, this is only making up less than 2% of our total 695 million barrel capacity. So what everyone's saying is that prices are unlikely to be affected. Yeah, there's a couple of backstories here. So the first thing, if you don't know what our strategic petroleum reserve is, it is exactly what it says. So to, in case something really bad happens, we have a huge, huge supply of crude oil stored, stored predominantly in salt domes all over the U.S. to make sure we can fuel our country and fuel our military. So it's it's a reserve that um, that allows us to function as a country and allows our military to function no matter what happens. The other thing, and they talk about the 21st Century's Cure Act. You know what's cool about that, Jake? That's actually um, a, 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 an act uh, Congress enacted um, to help support the National Institute of Health. And so there's a lot of, and, and people have probably seen this in the news, there's a lot of um, problems with prescription drug addiction here in the U.S. and, and all over the world, um, especially around opiates. And so uh, this uh, this 21st Century Cures Act is one of the things they're doing, which is cool, is they're doing research and drug development to help people that are addicted to prescription drugs. But in order to do that, they need money. And the way Congress decided to fund this is every now and then they'll sell some of our strategic petroleum reserves. So if you think about this, this is the oil and gas industry helping people drug addiction in, in a kind of a long roundabout set away. But I just think it's cool. And like you said, it's not going to affect oil prices. It's such a drop in the bucket. But it's um, it's it's good to see that uh, these dollars are actually used for the good of, of everybody here in the U.S. And looking back in history, you know, it, it's important to uh, kind of remember World War II and what happened to Japan when they didn't have any strategic reserves. Well, they lost. Well, you and I can go down this for hours. <laughs> so, so the reason they lost that war is because of our ability to outmanufacture everybody else in the world. A lot of people don't know this, but during World War II, for I think three years, Jake, you couldn't buy a car. You couldn't buy a new car because Ford and Chevrolet and Oldsmobile and Pontiac were making tanks yep. and planes. And yeah. And so we outmanufactured everybody. And that was the downfall of Japan is Japan literally has almost no natural resources. And so once we got to the point where we started cutting off their supply lines, they couldn't manufacture anything. And then what the, the, few, the few natural, and I'm not laughing, the few natural resources they had. So their zero fighters were made out of um, wood, bamboo, and paper. Whereas our Corsairs are made out of aluminum and steel. And so they just really weren't, it wasn't even really a fair fight. They got into a dog fight because, <laughs> you know, the, the stories I've read is they would, they would, uh, the, the pilots, the fighter pilots would grab the 50 calibers, pull the trigger on it. And the zero would just go puff and it was just gone. 
Um, but yeah, so that's that's a good point, Jake. In history, you know, if you don't have these strategic reserves, something bad happens, and, and all of a sudden you you can't run your country. <laughs> and if you're listening from Japan, we love you now. Obviously, that was like no, no, I, eighty years I, I ago. Have a, no, yeah, no, I I love J- Japan, right? I I've, I've been doing judo since I was 15 years old. I speak some Japanese. I love the people there. Been there several times. No, no, I love love Japanese people. I love the country. All right. So this next article, I'm a little confused about, so I'm hoping you can clarify for me. Um, the author was saying, are there certain OPEC members who are sabotaging the output deal? And who they're speaking about is Libya and Nigeria, who are OPEC members, but they actually weren't a part of the uh, the production deal. I just kind of blanked on that for a second. Yeah. So so this has been going on since OPEC has been around, especially lately. Uh, the other country I'll talk about is Venezuela. Um, so Libya, uh, Venezuela, uh, Nigeria, they've always been a thorn in OPEC's side because OPEC's strength is its ability for all its members. When OPEC says go up on production, they all go up. When OPEC says go down on production, they go down. And so they control the supply, a large part of the supply, sort of like De Beers controls the supply of diamonds. When there's too many diamonds on the market, De Beers cuts back on mining so that the price stays high, which benefits them. So the problem, though, lately with OPEC is that some of its members um, don't follow the directions, which then fundamentally destabilizes OPEC. And I, I think and you've, if you listen to the show, you've heard me say this for a while, but I think we've seen the beginning of the destabilization of OPEC. Once you have rogue members of an organization like this, of a cartel like this, and they do what they want, then OPEC loses its ability to manipulate those global prices. And you're already starting to see it happen. In fact, one of the reasons that OPEC... And, and, you know, if you're a new listener to the show, when the slow crude price environment happened about two and a half years ago, you know, everybody blamed OPEC. OPEC did nothing. They just didn't cut production. They, they actually did nothing. But the reason they did that is to one of the reasons they did it was to punish some of their rogue members um, who weren't wouldn't cut production when they asked them. And Venezuela, I was just talking to somebody from Venezuela just the other day, and they agree with me. I, I firmly convinced that Venezuela's government's going to be overthrown because their country's in shambles because the oil prices are, are so low, and they, they run their whole economy and, and combine that with all the corruption, and it's just a bad situation. They're literally Venezuela, Jake, they're, they're trading crude oil for beans and rice to feed their people, but it's not enough. So that's what's going on here is, you know, is is these are these rogue nations going to sabotage the OPEC uh, production cut deal. And if enough of them uh, go rogue, it will. Now, one of the things, and I think they touch about in this article a little bit, there's a big difference in um, what could happen and the reality. The problem with, with both Libya and Nigeria is they're so war torn. They have don't have the infrastructure. They have the oil, but not only can they not get it out the ground, they can't move it anywhere. Um, you know, we're, a while back, we're looking at one of the Nigerian terminals and of their, I think they had six terminals to load super tankers. Only one was working. And of that one, only two of its eight pumps were working. So instead of being able to load a tanker in three days, it was taking like three weeks. So the infrastructure is not there for them to actually get this out of the country. In order to get that fixed, all this fighting is going to have to stop between all these different tribes. Um, and that's what this is, is a bunch of tribes that are fighting. And then they're going to have to agree to rebuild everything. Um, I, you know, it's, I can see Nigeria um, getting out of that probably before Libya, but neither one of them they're going to go back into full production for years and years. So we'll see what happens. We'll keep our eye on this one. All right, up next, let's talk about the Keystone XL. Uh, so this next article was talking about how the Keystone XL is going to need a much higher oil price to even be viable. Um, so they're saying that the people are betting on much higher oil prices within the next few years, which kind of going back to our predictions for 2017, you know, we're expecting expecting the oil prices to be pretty flat. Um, so they're writing about and that it's going to take at least $85 oil to develop new oil sand projects needed to even fill the pipeline. 
Yeah, so this is a good article. Um, I don't quite agree with everything in here. Uh, first thing, Keystone is almost completely built from, from Canada to, to the Gulf Coast. It's that one little piece from Cushing, Oklahoma to the Gulf, the Keystone XL that's not completed. And what had happened is a bunch of other pipelines companies saw that as an opportunity, and they built capacity there. So the capacity is there now. Um, it's A lot of it's going to depend on what happens with our refineries, because right now we can't really refine the light sweet crews we produce. So you have to blend it with heavy crude. There's only a couple of sources of that heavy crude. Canada is probably the best one, right? Because they're geographically closer to us. Um, they they struggle with refining their heavy crude. They actually like to buy our light crude to mix with their heavy crude. So it's kind of that we help scratch each other's back. But uh, there's also some changes talked about in import and export with our current political administration. So if depending on how that goes, it could actually make it financially viable for Keystone to actually start moving that heavy crew down here, not at, at 80 or $85, but at 60 $65, depending on how the tax laws have changed. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't really matter um, because the capacity has, has already been taken care of. That constraint from Cushing, Oklahoma to the Gulf Coast, which was a major constraint for years, now is, is, has an oversupply of capacity. So it's kind of bad for TransCanada if, if our political system would got involved with their infrastructure project, they would have been first to market, which was their plan. Um, now it's, you know, they're, they're going to need a, a little bit higher oil price or some changes in the tax codes to make it uh, viable for them. The other thing, Jake, that they don't talk about here is that the crude that we need, the heavy crude comes from the oil sands. That's a different business model. That's expensive oil to get out of the ground. You don't yeah. drill for oil sands. You either mine it, you strip mine it, um, or you uh, uh, inject heat into the ground and you can pump the oil out. And it's just, they're just an expensive way to get oil out of the ground. So a messy way to get oil and, and, ground and, too. And messy, yeah. So we, we need that heavy crude. There's other sources though, right? We can get it from the Middle East. There's we get it from Venezuela. Um, there's other places we can get it. If but the Keystone may not be viable. Not so much that the Keystone pipeline is not viable, but the cost of getting that heavy crude from the oil sands it just doesn't make sense right now in this low crude price environment. So, you know, we'll keep an eye on on this story as well. It's um I'm you know our current administration has already made recommendations to complete this thing. I wish they would, and it looks like they are. And then once they get the last piece of this, the Keystone XL done, then we can go back and look at the finance model and see if it makes sense. So India is actually planning on merging all of their state oil companies. Apparently they have like 12 different companies currently. Uh, and their goal is they're trying to create an integrated public sector oil major, which will be able to match the performance of, you know, international and domestic private sector oil and gas companies, Exxon, Chevron, Total, so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a good strategy. I don't think they're going to be able to pull it off. Um, so they're basically taking um, state-run uh, oil and gas companies and, if you know, Knox. And the, the bad thing about state-run oil and gas companies is they don't know how to run things efficiently because they're owned by the government. And so you could take a bunch of government agencies. Imagine Jake taking um, the, the VA. The, the, the v, <laughs> imagine taking the VA, the post office, and the driver's license and combine them together and make it, and expect they're to compete with Exxon. Oh, <laughs> man. It's just, it's just not going to happen. It gives me anxiety to think about it. <laughs> um, but, but it's the idea is really good. So what happens is you combine these companies, and there will be about $100 billion in, in revenue. Um, now they have scope. Now they have reach. Now they have leverage on their vendors. Um, now they have the ability to compete from a, a capital point of view on picking up these really worthwhile leases all over the world. So I like the idea. It's going to be the execution I think they're really going to struggle with. Um, and, and I would like to see them pull it off. I'd like to see them pull off because I would like to see another competitor of that size in, in the world. Um, but I just don't have a lot of faith they're going to be able to do it. We'll see. We'll, we'll keep an eye on it. And if it does happen, it's not going to happen like in the next year or two. This is probably, this is probably a decade. It's probably 10 years of of um, merging these companies, changing the culture, 
um, letting the company itself learn how to compete in a global uh, economy, oil and gas economy. Um, so it's not going to happen quickly. But the idea, I think, is awesome. Yeah, definitely. So bring it down to a little bit of a micro scale from the macro. Uh, Louisiana officials have voiced their support for a new bayou uh, bridge pipeline uh, in Louisiana. Uh, it's a 162-mile pipeline that would transport 148,000 barrels of petroleum products a day. Uh, and they're saying it's going to lead to $830 million in economic benefit for Louisiana just this year alone. Yeah, and this, so this is a great story. So Louisiana's oil and gas production has declined over the years, um, but they have some of the biggest refineries in the Gulf Coast. And so this this Bayou uh, Bridge pipeline basically is going from the uh, Lake Charles, so it's so almost the border of Texas, all the way to St. James, which is over by New Orleans where all the refineries are. So it's basically going uh, uh, west to east and down the southern part of Louisiana. And this is going to allow um, the refineries there to tap into all the supply of, of crude coming into the, the Houston area. Um, you know, we have a bunch of major pipelines that bring all these all this crude from all the shell plays, um, even from Canada, like we talked about in the previous article, to Houston. Well, now the Louisiana refineries can tap into that mega of, of petroleum, of, of crude oil. So this is a great project. It looks like it's been approved. Um, you know, once again, they had some environmental activists give them a little bit of flack. And what the environmental activists failed to realize is the safest way to move anything in an environmentally responsible way is in a pipeline. Um, so it, it, this is good. Now, they're going to make a whole bunch of money. There's going to be a whole bunch of jobs to construct this thing because this thing's not a weekend project. And then once it's constructed, you have a whole bunch of jobs, long-term jobs create to run this thing. So this is just prosperity for the people in Louisiana, and I'm glad they actually pulled it off. Um, the cool thing is, Jake, if you ever look at a map of the pipelines in the U.S., it literally, there's so many of them that you almost can't see the ground. And so, you know, pipelines are, are, are a great thing. Uh, it's very rare you have any type of problem with it. And then the modern pipelines with modern controls and safety measures and sensors in it, it they're, they're almost foolproof. So, um, you know, good job, Louisiana, for, for pulling something off and, and throwing some more money back into your own economy. This next article is kind of going back to something that we've talked about in the past with uh, there just being a lack of, of skilled laborers uh, in the industry. Uh, and as a result, University of Texas San Antonio has launched a chemical engineering degree program to kind of fill the unmet need uh, in South Texas. Yeah. And so there's a huge demand for chemical engineers. If you're a student out there and you can't figure out what you want to do, but you want to get into a fun, exciting, well-paid uh, part of the oil and gas industry, go become a, chem a chemical engineer. What a lot of people don't understand is how many, how much products are made from oil and gas. Literally everything I'm sitting at my desk here, almost everything in my desk, you know, my, my monitor for my Mac, my keyboard for my Mac, the microphones I'm talking to, the cables connecting my microphones to the voice recorder, the SD card in the voice recorder, all that came from crude oil or natural gas. And it's in the productization of oil and gas is getting better and bigger and better and bigger from a global standpoint. In order to do that, you need a chemical engineer. And so um, there's a shortage of them. There will continue to be a shortage of them. It's really cool. The University of, of, of Texas San Antonio has launched a bachelor's degree program in chemical engineering because this way, you know, um, young people that want to get that degree in Texas now have access to that. Um, the other thing I thought was really cool is that the former CEO of Valero Energy um, have a um, uh, have really supported this and they they um, support the co uh, creation of a college of engineering scholarship. And so um, that just allows more oil and gas companies to put money in a place to actually grow talent. You know, the oil and gas industry as a whole loves its people. 
and they do a really good job of taking care of their employees, but they also looking out to take care of their future employees, right? And they know there's a shortage of, of chemical engineers. So this is a way for the oil and gas industry to help stand up a program with the university so they can grow this book of talent so then they can hire them to get out of school. So if you're a student, think about that. If the comp if these oil and gas companies are willing to promote this program so that they can have chemical engineers so they can hire them, the odds of you getting a job are pretty darn high um, because they're they're filling their own talent pipeline. So yeah, it's a um, great job. It's gonna be interesting. We, you know, we actually probably need to get out there, Jake, and do a show from um, the University of Texas in San Antonio because they have a, a small but really cool engineering program. I bet it would be a cool place to do a live podcast. Yeah, that'd be really cool. All right. Up next, uh, this article kind of goes back to what we talked about. Uh, I think it was like two, two, three episodes ago. Uh, there's a growing interest in adoption in big data in the oil field. So I think it was episode 98. We talked a little bit about big data analytics and man, my inbox was swamped with just people who were just really hyped up about the topic. They wanted to talk about it. Um, you know, it's, it just goes to show that with my experiences in the oil field, you know, it's mostly dealing with a lot of older guys. We know that oil and gas is culturally different. And this just kind of shows that there's a there's a new way, there's a new generation coming in who are really excited about um, all of the improvements that technology can kind of bring to the field. Um, so this first article was talking about how uh, big data is positively influencing all types of industries. You know, we see it in healthcare, we see it in education, we see it in government, which severely needs it. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, oil and gas is different, and they're not able to—they're not fully leveraging the uh, capabilities of, of big data. They're not really tapping into it at all. Yeah, um, they actually aren't tapping into it. Everybody's trying to figure out how to do this, and you know, the upstream guys, the geoscience guys, have done a good job. Uh, using big data because that's a big data part of the industry but they haven't done a great job and so you know they're able to analyze all their structured data and that's data that basically has some bits and pieces around it to explain what that data is but their unstructured data there's probably huge revelations made in analyzing that unstructured data but they can't analyze it because it's unstructured and, exactly. and unstructured stuff like the word doc that's sitting on your computer that's different from the word doc sitting on your neighbor's computer and so on and so on so um, there's a lot of, of looking at this. And, and Jake, the, one of the biggest benefits is nobody, no, even Exxon, who I put up there on a pedestal, even Exxon doesn't look at all the data around first oil to going into production to decommissioning that, that rig, right? Decommissioning that well. And that may be 50 years from beginning to end. But if you could look at it from a data point of view and analyze everything so that the guys that are actually drilling that well know what to do from a data point of view to make it easier for the guys that go in production who then know what to do using data to make it easier for the guys that have to decommission that well, you're talking about not only driving efficiencies as far as increasing production, but enormous cost savings. And that's just around analyzing the data. Right. And, mm -hmm. and it's so it's just it, there's so much opportunity here. Things like um, HSE, you know, we have Patrick and I have the Oil and Gas HSE podcast. Um, we actually talked a while back about a company that was doing some big data work in, in downstream and accidentally uncovered that a certain contractor, uh, when they were on site, when they were doing what's called fire watch, so anytime you're welding, you have a third person watching, make sure you don't set anything on fire, that they had a much lower incident rate, injury rate. And it come to find out, it was because the vest, that the fire watchers wore for that one company was a different color. No person could have ever figured that out. It wasn't until they crunched the data that that was uncovered. So, so that big data actually made it safer for people to work just by changing a color or something. So there's, there's all kinds of opportunity here. This is, this is great stuff and it's going somewhere. This, I've been in this industry for 20 years. This is my fourth downturn. I have never in my entire time in this industry seen the adoption of new technology like big data 
accelerate like it is now. Yeah, and companies have had you know, say SCADA sensors on equipment for for decades, but they're not really doing anything with the data to actually optimize their operations. Um, so there's, I mean, there's a couple reasons for that. For one, a lot of these sensors are overly expensive, um, and two, they're also unreliable. So that's a good combination to have. You're paying a whole lot for things that don't work. Um, yep. But you know, the oil field of the future, you know, we're going to, be able to capture live sensor readings while drilling to know exactly where to drill. No, that's happening yeah. already. And the other thing that happens a lot, Jake, is actually the technology itself. Oil and gas companies tend to be old. A lot of them have grown by acquisition. So you have all these legacy systems that don't actually talk to each other. And then unfortunately, yep. and even to this day, I mean, it's 2017, a lot of stuff's still done on paper. And you, it's, you, you can analyze paper, but it's a different world, right? You have to have some machine learning that can understand the difference between a pair as in the fruit and a pair as in a pair of scissors and, mm -hmm. you know, and a pair as in, as in you know, a, a pair of matching drill stem or whatever. Um, and it, it, it is being done. It's, and it's being done now. But um, being able to do that effectively is going to totally revolutionize this industry. And, and people say I'm crazy, but I'm telling you, 20 years our industry is going to look like Silicon Valley. It's going to be sexy. It's oh, going to yeah. be fast. It's going to be a bunch of uh, entrepreneurs and small businesses doing really cool stuff, very flexible labor force. Um, and, and I'm ready for it to get there. I can't get here quick enough for me. Let's think about how the culture of these companies is going to change. They're going to go from being data collection uh, organizations to data analyzation organizations. So you're going to be hiring data scientist. You're going to have people who are coming in to analyze tons and tons and tons of data in addition to the software. Yeah, and that's actually, Jake, that the number one... Uh, constraint in jobs. So the number one job, number one position that oil and gas companies are looking for right now in 2017 globally is the, that exact thing, data scientists. And that job didn't even exist in oil and gas five or six years ago. Yeah, it's a completely new category, uh, completely new job title. So there's obviously a lot of interest here. Uh, adoption is picking up. It's still a long, we still have a long ways to go. Um, but it's super exciting. And I think this is something, obviously, it's dear to my heart. And I know you're excited about it as well. So yeah, well, we you, wanted to you, throw that back in there. Yeah, you look at the GD's, GE's predicts. Um, platform that they're doing. That's literally what oh, they're yeah, doing. Yeah. They see it coming and they're getting ahead of that curve. You know, SAP Han has been in this world forever. Um, you know, uh, Tipco Spotfire has been here, but you have new players like uh, MapR. MapR is is growing like crazy in oil and gas because of the need to be able to analyze a big data. Uh, Theo, if you're listening, big shout out to you. Uh, Theo's over there at MapR. That's how I got to know that company. Um, but but yeah, and, and there's so much room for improvement. And we're at the very infancy of this. This technology is nowhere near the peak of that mature curve. We're just now, we're still coming straight up. So all great stuff. All right. That about wraps it up for the stories. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, let's move on to our winner for the week. Yeah, so our Red Wing bag winner is Adam Erickson with CEL Electric. He's a project manager over there. So congratulations, Eric. You have won this awesome Red Wing offshore bag, um, which, by the way, Jake, I had somebody else offer me cash for one, and, and we don't do that. The only way you can win one uh, is you have to go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Throw your information in there. We draw one lucky winner a week. Uh, no purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. And our rig count for the week is up 17 for a total of 729. Yeah. You know, we should start a pool. When we do our live event, we should get everybody chip in five bucks and start a pool and see what the rig counts could be at the end of 2017. <laughs> I bet we're place your bets now. I, I'm telling you now, I'll probably put it about 1300. We'll see. <laughs> um, and then we have events on deck. So we talked about NAEP earlier. So Jake and I and the rest of the podcast crew will be at the NAEP Summit uh, February 15th and 17th. Uh, 
you also have um, the SPE Canadian Heavy Oil and Technical Conference and a whole bunch of other stuff. If you'd like to find out about these events for free, it's really easy. Jacob put a link to our newsletter. Uh, Motor Point puts out a monthly oil and gas newsletter where we collect all the gas, oil and gas events, put them in one place, stick in your inbox once a month for nothing. Um, and then every now and then we throw some freebies in there, free passes to events. We're going to do that for OTC, maybe entry into stuff that nobody else knows about. So go sign up. And then we have our first Friday Q&A coming up. It's a ways away, but the last one was awesome. We got some great questions. And I've already gotten, I think, two questions for, for March's first Friday Q&A. So if you have a question like Jake and I to answer, it's really easy to go to Oil and Gas This Week and go to ask a question and uh, throw your question in there. And if we answer your question on the air, we give you a big shout out. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review. That helps us so much. Yeah, Jake, we haven't gotten a review since uh, July. So come Are you on, serious? yeah, yeah. I went and looked. Oh, I wanted man. to read some, and I can't because we don't have any. So come on, guys. Yeah, take the two minutes. Go to iTunes. Uh, leave us a review, um, and we will give you another big shout out. Um, the other thing is, and it's the last time I say it. If you listen to HSNE show, we bro- I broke the feed. I keep saying we. It was really me. I broke the feed. So you have to go back into iTunes if you listen to it in iTunes and search for it again and resubscribe. We won't. I won't break again. I promise. And then you know this by now because you've been listening for a while. But All in Gas this week has his own website. Uh, you can go sign up like a zillion different ways to subscribe to the podcast when they come out. You can also sign up for our email list. We won't spam you, but it's one of the places where we're going to announce stuff that we're not going to announce on the podcast. Go, so go throw your name in there. And then we have our LinkedIn group. Jake, what's going on with that? So we have a LinkedIn group. Uh, things are always popping on the group. We just launched a Facebook group as well. Um, so these groups are not for us. These groups are for you guys to have a place to communicate with each other and kind of just keep the conversation going. Um, so yeah, you know, jo- join those, whatever's more convenient for you. Or join them all. Uh, yeah, join them all. That, that's always a good thing to do. Yeah, because the conversations are different on LinkedIn than they are on Facebook because they're different platforms. So it's um, if you join both, you're more likely to get benefit out of it. And I've actually seen, I mean, I've seen, you know, we have the whole Oil & Gas Global Network crew. I've seen everybody answer questions, give ideas. Um, you know, I've actually helped, and please don't reach out to me for a job. I've actually helped a couple people get jobs through LinkedIn board. So um, yeah, go join boy, both. You'll be glad you did. You're going to receive 25 <laughs> resumes. <laughs> no, no, no. I actually want it for, so for Mark's own um, professional development, one of the things that we're going to do is in March, starting March 1st, I'm going to stop doing that sort of stuff. I'm going to point people where they can go help themselves, but I'm just so busy, Jake. I can't keep doing that. And it, it pains me because I love helping people, but I just can't, I just don't have the time to spend people, help, help people look for work. I can tell you where to go find work, right? I can point you in the right direction. I'm just not going to help anymore. Hey, Silicon Valley investors do the same thing. They limit themselves. Yeah. Like uh, Chris Saka, the billionaire, he actually moved outside of Silicon Valley because he kept taking coffee with everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going to end up having to do some of that too, um, and it, which is a shame, but you know, I got a company to run. Actually, I got a company to run and then all of us have a uh, uh, oil and gas media company to run. So we, we all busy. Uh, speaking of busy, be, about being busy, ready to get out of here, Jake? Let's do it. All right, folks. So do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time.